Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figner of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, and many other areas of contemporary inquiry. Today's interview is with Richard Fummerton, F. Wendell Miller Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. His new book, Knowledge, Thought, and the Case for Dualism, is just out from Cambridge University Press. A few years back, Frank Jackson articulated a thought experiment about a brilliant neuroscientist who knew everything there was to know about the physical world, but who had never had the experience of seeing color. When she sees a red tomato for the first time, she learns something new, what it's like to experience red. The knowledge argument spawned a cottage industry of defenses and counterarguments for and against the claim that the mind could be identified with the brain. In his new book, Fummerton argues that the force of the knowledge argument depends on an account of knowledge and that the most motivated defense of the dualist position stems from a commitment to an internalist foundationalist epistemology, in much the way that Descartes argued for dualism centuries ago. Farmington shows how core issues in epistemology, metaphysics, and philosophy of language play a role in the argument, weaving together a wide variety of debates in contemporary analytic philosophy into his discussion. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Richard Farmington. Are you there? I am. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Well, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to talk to me about... uh my new book. They're excited about it. Uh, well, it's, it's hardly agreeing to. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, uh, so maybe you can start us off by uh, giving us a little background on, on what led you to write uh, to write the book. Um, the knowledge argument has been around for a while. Um, you know, you, one might think that all the permutations and possible discussions have been have been touched on, but. You know, you obviously feel that you know it. It really needs to be um, approached from a from a, a different perspective than it has been. Um, so, can you explain what uh, the the history of the book? Yeah, I suppose um, uh, to be honest, the history of the book goes all the way back to my my very first philosophy course at the University of Toronto. Uh, like a lot of students, uh, my first course. Uh, heavily focused on, on Descartes. It was a little tutorial. There were three people in the course and one of them dropped out. So there's no room to hide. We, 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 uh, we had some class pretty well prepared. And um, I got absolutely fascinated by Descartes. You can't be fascinated by Descartes without thinking long and hard about both his views about knowledge and his search for secure foundations and, of course, famously, his views about the mind, uh, particularly his view that it's a mistake try to identify the mind with the body. So I've been interested in this topic literally for about uh, 50 years. 
you asked a good question. You asked, I mean, the knowledge argument, I guess, as I think of it, goes back well, well before Jackson. So it's not just a few decades now that people have been arguing back and forth on it. It's several hundred years that people have been arguing back and forth on In general, I guess I'm inclined to think that advances in philosophy tend not to be, um, with a few exceptions, they tend not be huge revolutions, uh, that advances are made by making a point here a little more clearly, by making an argument here a little bit more persuasively, by coming up with a response to objections that people have raised two of you. Um, I don't think in this book uh, I've uh, advanced the position in, in general outline that nobody's ever held. Uh, and I think that people have been um, trying out at least arguments similar to the arguments I can uh, consider in this book. I do think the package, though, gives the reader um, a much better sense of how so many different issues in philosophy all come together and need to be addressed if we're, if we're going to find a satisfactory evaluation. Okay, so you you start off by by setting up the problem. Um, uh, sorry. No, I didn't say it. I'm sorry. Okay, um, you start by setting up the problem. You know, when you introduce Descartes' argument, or or at least one of them for substance dualism, right in the Meditations. Uh, primarily, um, and the the so-called hard versus easy problems of consciousness, um, and then you know introduce the thought experiment uh, itself. So maybe uh, before we get to your when we get to your responses, we can um, uh, rely on on this uh, discussion. Uh, could you just set it up for us briefly? Um, how you before you go into how you address the problem. Sure, and let, let's start with Descartes. Um, again, as I, as I uh, referred to just a moment ago, uh, it seems as though, at least starting out, one of the central tasks of Descartes' famous meditations was to discover an absolutely secure foundation for knowledge. He thought he could doubt all sorts of things. Uh, he was worried that there was a, a whole bunch of disagreement among very learned people. He wanted to set foundation uh, Sorry, knowledge and a secure foundation. Uh, rightly or wrongly, he came to the conclusion that one thing he knew with absolute certainty, and by absolute certainty, I think he meant something he believed with justification so strong that he couldn't even imagine, couldn't even conceive of having that kind of justification while his belief was false. And as, uh, as almost everybody knows, right? The, uh, the truth that he thought he could know in that way, the first truth he mentioned, that he thought he could know in that way, is the proposition that he existed. That famous argument, I think, therefore, I exist. Or at least, nothing's uncontroversial in philosophy, but a lot of people think it's an argument. I think, therefore, I exist. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he'd already... Uh, convinced himself by thinking about dreams and hallucinations and the possibility of demons. He thought he'd already convinced himself that he could uh, doubt, he could make sense of uh, living in a world in which the physical world doesn't exist at all. He thought he could make sense of, at least, uh, uh, 
his life being one vivid dream or one long vivid hallucination. So there you get uh, the first knowledge argument for the view that I'm not my body because this is true of me. I know with absolute certainty that I exist. Not true of my body, it's not true of anything going on in my body that I can know that uh, if or it's happening uh, in that way. So I can't be identical with my body. There's another argument there too, a modal argument, right? He mm-hmm. thinks uh, he can um, uh, make sense of a world in which um, it's possible for him to exist without his body. Well, that's the premise. It's just possible for me to exist without my body, metaphysically possible, so I can't be identical with my body. Now, he, he, he was going to the global question of whether he, he could identify himself with his body. But when you think about the structure of the argument, he could just as well uh, have presented the argument as an argument for the conclusion that some particular mental state uh, is not identical with some particular physical state. So take the proverbial sea fibers firing in the brain, which some people want to suggest, or some people suggest it could be identified with. Uh, my being in pain at a certain time. At least as I read Descartes, he thought uh, he could know with absolute certainty not just that he existed, but he could know with absolute certainty certain states of himself, like, for example, that he's in pain, like, for example, that he thinks. Um, and now somebody comes along and says, well, you know, pain's nothing more than T-fibers firing. And he would respond, I think, uh, just to keep it with his own existence. That can't be right. I know with absolute certainty uh, that I'm in pain right now. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, at least this would, is what many people could claim. I have no idea what's happening in my brain right now as far as what the processes are occurring. Something that's true of the pain is not true of the brain states. They're not identical. So, um... Flash forward. Yeah. Um, well, go ahead. You can talk more about Descartes if you like. Uh, well, well, I mean, one of the, you know, really interesting things about the book is, is how in, in many different respects it, it, it tracks Descartes a lot. Um, uh, so when you, when you get to, you know, your defense of dualism, um, although it's not Cartesian substance dualism, it's, it's a property dualism, um, many of the moves that you make, um, you know, have their parallels in, in Descartes. I thought that was that was really interesting. That um, I mean, you, you're an internalist foundationalist, um, and in fact, um, when you when you after you've gone through you know various forms of dualism and, and so forth, um, you basically argue, as I understood it, that um, you sort of have to be uh, a foundationalist. Uh, and I guess an internalist foundationalist, in order to be a dualist. Is that is that correct? So I might put it just slightly differently. I guess uh, what I really want to argue is that unless one embraces a certain form of foundationalism, and indeed not just of knowledge but of thought, um, then one loses arguments for dualism. And I wouldn't argue that you can't be a dualist. Consistently, I mean, it's, it's been argued, for example, and I think it's correct that, that uh, uh, a certain form of functionalism is consistent with a certain form of dualism. But there are almost no functionalists who are dualists, 
because you've lost your philosophical reason to be um, a dualist, I think, once one embraces once one embraces functionalism. But as far as your general point, I think that's right. I think this the argument of this book is is very Cartesian in nature. But I think that's also true of Frank Jackson's knowledge argument. And and Jackson's argument is is just a version of a number of different arguments that well-known philosophers have, have given over the years. It, it, it's called a knowledge argument for a reason, I think, right? Maybe we should talk about the knowledge argument very quickly, uh, and the different versions of it. But the one I think people found most compelling was the thought experiment involving a, a neuroscientist, Mary, who uh, was living her entire life in a black and white environment. Let's just call her color-deprived Mary. <laughs> uh, she's making wonderful discoveries about the physical world, however, including the brain, as the as the hypothesis is sometimes described. She knows everything there is to know about physics. She knows everything to know about chemistry. She knows everything to know about what's happening physically in someone's brain. But, of course, never having had a color experience, she doesn't know what it is for something to look red. It sounds very much like Descartes to me. I know everything there is to know about physical stuff, and yet I still don't know, Mary's supposed to be able to think to herself, what it is for something to look red. And when she finally does escape the black and white room and have a color experience for the first time, as of redness, she has this... Uh, moment. She has this moment in which she discovers a property. She comes to know that there's a property that's, that's uh, been exemplified of which she was completely ignorant before. At least she was, um, we'll talk more about this a, a little bit later probably. Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't know what the property was in one sense of know what the property was. She made a genuine discovery about um, what happens in the world of which he was previously ignorant. And then the question is, what can you do with that epistemological fact? Is anything about the nature of uh, appearance and the nature of the brain follow from what seems to be a pretty plausible claim that she did not know prior to having the color experience, as it sometimes put, what it's like? have a color experience didn't know the intrinsic character of that mental state uh to pursue the the connection with descartes you know in in i think chapter two you go through various versions of of dualism and you end up defending for various reasons property dualism um but of course uh descartes himself thought this argument led to to a substance dualism um and you know, few people today endorse a substance dualism, although the motivations for it, you know, in terms of, you know, the possibility of an afterlife, you know, those are often cited as reasons for um, for substance dualism, which doesn't carry over to property dualism, as far as I understand. Um, and you don't endorse substance dualism. So I was just wondering, why don't you go that far? You know, you know, you know as, the, as a fellow traveler with Descartes, <laughs> you know, why don't you just go all the way? 
You know, the short answer to the question is that I'm not sure what a substance is. I'm not sure that I want to even include substances in my ontology, uh, at least uh, with respect to many sorts of properties. Um, I'm sympathetic to uh, trope theory. Uh, when I say sympathetic to it, I haven't got a full fledged defense of it. So I, you know, I'm not, I have never published anything which I claim that, that, that one can do away with substance. But of course, trivially, if one's not a substance theorist, one's not going to want to identify substances uh, with anything. Let, let me just say a word about Descartes, though. I mean, Descartes was famously a substance uh, dualist, and he was perfectly comfortable with the concept of substance. He also was, though, at least as I make the distinctions it seems to me almost certainly additionally a property dualist i think he, he wouldn't identify mental properties the properties of this mental substance with any physical properties the properties of physical substances um and he was also a fact dualist I, I think the fact that i'm in pain for descartes uh, wouldn't be identified with any paradigmatic physical fact so when people say uh, Descartes was a substance dualist. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. He was. But uh, we shouldn't forget that he was also a property dualist. He was also a fact dualist. Uh, I don't know whether he thought there were events or not. Events are a really tricky category, but if he did, I think he'd be an event dualist too. He'd be every kind of dualist you can imagine. I think I'm sympathetic to the radical empiricist view that we have a much better grasp of properties, both in terms of knowledge and in terms of thought, than we do of the bearers of properties. I'm a little sympathetic, to be honest with you. It's embarrassing to admit it, perhaps, to that, that kind of hokey, radical empiricist argument that if you, if you strip away the properties of a thing, there's nothing left. There's no particular the bearer of those properties. There's no substance that uh, is the bearer of those properties. The, the object, I'm sympathetic, sympathetic to the view that the object is in some sense critically constituted by the properties it has. So, I mean, it's it's kind of sounds like uh, would a, a neutral monism kind of be up your alley? Yeah, so, so property dualism is tricky, right? So yeah. When you, when you advocate property dualism, you've got in mind two kinds of properties, the physical properties and the mental properties. And I can imagine a philosopher saying, well, why are you a property dualist? Why don't you just be, um, um, <laughs> you can either say a property monist or you could say a property pluralist, right? Mm. Just, just make as many different distinctions between kinds of properties as there are. There are lots of different kinds of properties. There are color properties, there are shape properties, there are weight properties, there are uh, various mental properties. Uh, and within the class of mental properties, you can distinguish as many different properties as you want to. So why don't you let them all flourish? Why don't you just say, I've got an ontology, it's a rich ontology, there are many, many, many different sorts of properties. Um, the only reason that I'm going to call myself a property dualist is that some of the properties I want to recognize 
as distinct properties, properties that um, uh, have their own nature. They're not to be identified with uh, any other property. They're simple and unanalyzable. Some of those properties, others, especially physicalists, want to claim they're identical with. And then you've got a, a range of properties that are paradigmatically physical. So they'll say, for example, no, no, yeah, being in pain is just this functional property. Or they might say um, uh, uh, thinking about a unicorn just is the brain being in a certain state. And my view is, no, it's not. Um, if you want to, if you want to, at that point, say, well, all right, you're still with us, aren't you? I mean, you don't. There's no need, is there, for you to create a separate label for these properties, the mental ones, uh, to mark them off from the ones that we've been calling physical. There's a sense in which, uh, and this might have been confusing in the book for us, but there's a sense in which I'm fine with that. I mean, just don't make the mistake of, uh, of identifying these properties that we know better than any other property that are the foundations of our thought about other things and other properties. Don't make the mistake of identifying them with properties that they're not identical with. Remember Moore started out his book, uh, Principia Ethica, I think, that, uh, if I remember correctly, to claim everything is what it is and not another thing. It's not terribly profound, but it's sure true. And I think the mistake of physicalism is to identify mental properties with things they're not identical with. So let let me let me get to some of the more epistemological parallels. Um, in your uh, internalist foundationalism, you defend a direct acquaintance view of uh, of our knowledge of our mental states, or at least of the current conscious mental states. Um, right. uh, can you say something about about that? Um, you know, both the directness and the acquaintance aspects. I'll try to say something about it. My experience has been, um, when I, especially if I'm not dealing with a philosopher somewhat sympathetic with the view, they never think I can say enough about it. Yeah. So I'll warn you in advance that uh, they're going to be um, this critical notion of acquaintance. When you're right, it is absolutely critical. I don't think it can be defined in uh in the sense in which philosophers usually think of definitions. I don't think I can break it down into uh, simpler uh, relations, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean much. I mean, definition has to begin somewhere. You can't define every term uh, you rely upon in trying to explain what you think needs explaining. Still, uh, i got to do something. So I can tell you properties of the property of acquaintance. I can tell you, first of all, that it's a relation. Uh, it's a real relation. It's not an intentional relation. And the reason I say real relation and not an intentional relation is that I want to stress it requires the latter. So you can't be acquainted with a pain that doesn't exist. Unlike intentional states, for example, like fear. Fear looks like a relation, at least the word fear looks as though it picks out a relation and grammatically we talk about, for example, fearing ghosts and we, we think it's, it can be true that somebody fears ghosts even if there aren't any ghosts, right? 
Um, that suggests to me that it's not really a relation, that, that what looks like an object term isn't an object term. Uh, I'm sympathetic to what's sometimes called the adverbial account of intentional space. But acquaintance isn't an, is not an intentional space. Uh, it, it, when you're acquainted with something, that something exists. Uh, just as if you hit something, that something exists. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of relation. Uh, can I, can I ostend it? Well, I, not by pointing, but I, I often try to rely on this thought experiment. But uh, you're going to immediately think of a response to the thought experiment, so we'll give it a shot anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm in pain, let's say, fairly severe pain. I'm, I'm paying attention to it. I'm aware of it, as I would say. Um, I might not know quite how to describe the pain. I might um, be at a loss for words, especially if it's a kind of pain I've never had before. But I might be perfectly aware of this pain as it occurs. Then you and I, as we are, start engaging in uh, a really interesting conversation. And I start thinking carefully about what I'm saying and listening carefully to what you're saying, it seems to me it's not unfamiliar uh, for us to suddenly realize we didn't notice for a while. We weren't aware of for a while that pain. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two possibilities, of course. This is the, the response. I, I thought I'd make your response before uh, you get a chance to. Sometimes it diffuses the response. One, one possible response is, well, you're lucky. The pain stopped for a while. Among the things that can kill pain are not just Tylenol and aspirin, but interesting conversation can kill pain. Another possibility, though, um, and I'm perfectly sympathetic to this, at least as a possibility, is that the pain continued, sure enough. It's just that you weren't aware of the pain. Once you start thinking about the situation that way, it might not be hard to come up with all sorts of features of a current mental state, uh, which uh, you're uh, sometimes aware of and sometimes unaware of. Think about artists. I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I just, I just thought, I liked the painting. I had to stop because it took way too much of my time. So I'd love to do it again someday. Uh, when you do paint for a while, you start paying close attention to how things look um, in terms, let's say, let's just keep talking about color for a minute, in terms of color. You notice differences, uh, even very, very subtle differences in the way things look that you might not have been aware of before you uh, began to paint, before you noticed, for example, that when you slapped some green down on a canvas, it didn't look very much like the uh, grass in the field or the leaves on a tree. And at that point, you start paying closer attention to how things look and realize that there's way more variation in colors, let's say, in the visual field than you might not have noticed before. Mm. So what are we pointing to? It's what what was there when you weren't noticing. Sorry, what was um, absent when you weren't noticing these features of appearance and what was there when you were noticing it. That's a point. So Not the same thing as knowledge. Yeah. Because, again, it seems to me this phenomenon we're talking about it might occur even with respect to somebody who's having difficulty representing 
uh, in in language or even representing in thought um, uh, these subtle features of their experience. So, um, so it, is the foundation what we're what we're conscious of or what we're aware of? Uh, neither. So I've got a kind of complicated views. So there's that old Salarzian objection to the given, right? Mm-hmm. So far, what I, when I talk about being acquainted with something, it sounds suspiciously like the old notion of something being given to one. And Sellers famously, and I think rightly, pointed out that uh, you guys have a bit of a problem. You don't want the given. You don't want the fact that something's given to be a form of propositional knowledge, but you're also appealing to the given to find foundations uh, of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, but foundations of knowledge have, have to be true. They have to be something you can use as a premise. I think all that's right. So, so the mere fact that I'm, let's say, directly acquainted with pain doesn't mean that I have any propositional knowledge at all. You only have propositional knowledge, I argue, when you're not only acquainted with the pain, uh, you also have to be thinking that you're in pain. You have to be representing the state as pain. Mm-hmm. And you have to be directly aware of that thought corresponding to the pain. So it's basically acquaintance with the thought, acquaintance with the truth maker for the thought, and acquaintance with the truth making relations. Those together that give you foundational knowledge. Uh, animals might be acquainted, for all I know. Animals might be acquainted with various states without having any propositional knowledge because they're not capable of thoughts. They're not capable of categorizing. They're not capable of representing what they're aware of. I also even think it's possible, though a lot of people think this sounds nuts, I think it's possible for an animal to be in pain without being aware of it pain and without having any propositional knowledge that it is in pain. I think that's possible too. So I want to distinguish all three of those. I want to distinguish the pain from your awareness of the pain from your knowledge that you're in pain. I think those are three different states. So that's a that's that that's a very high bar, right, I guess, for for having knowledge of one's it's 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 it seems to go beyond maybe the caricature of Descartes in which he simply kind of looks into his own mind and and sees all these, you know, current mental states going on. And, and I think it is. And, you know, you were talking about the ways in which, again, I have no qualms about characterizing my approach as Cartesian. But on the other hand, I have a very specific account of what foundational knowledge is. I, I have no idea how much of it I could talk Descartes into accepting if I could resurrect him and have a conversation with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he might have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about acquaintance, but then I had no idea what he was talking about when he talked about clarity and distinctness. So somehow or other, we try to, we'd have to try to convince each other either that we were talking about the same thing all along. <laughs> or that you really should have been talking more the way I talk. That's that's uh, one of the one of the benefits of of the substance dualist position. You could, in theory, you could still talk with him. Uh, well, except I'm going to talk about acquaintance with the self, um, and 
he's going to talk about, uh, among other things, he's going to talk about how the self's existence is clear and distinct. You know, right off the bat, if you start talking about acquaintance with the self, you, you've got you've got to step up on the responses that sort of immediately came pouring down on Descartes, right? So people thought of contemporary responses even back when Descartes was writing. They said, look, I don't understand. You make a claim about knowledge. You say you know you exist. And you don't know in that way, at least, that uh, physical objects exist, including your own brain. And then all of a sudden you decide well, since I know the one and I don't know the other, I guess they're not distinct. It sounds suspiciously like Lois Lane, wondering who Superman was uh, and reaching the conclusion that uh, at least I know he's not Clark Kent. If I know Clark Kent's here in the office with me and I don't know that Superman's here in the office with me, so I guess they're not the same person. Got to be something wrong with that argument, and a lot of people have claimed that yeah, there is something wrong with that argument, and everybody accepts some version of a knowledge argument for either substance dualism or property dualism has made the same mistake. So let me let me just ask uh, to get back to the knowledge argument in in a second directly. Um, uh, the direct acquaintance view um, includes, of course, this directness. Um, and you do make a, you know, important distinction between, you know, a direct sort of, um, well, the, the directness of the acquaintance versus and knowledge based on that, the foundational stuff, and then the any sort of knowledge uh, that is inferential, right? So the direct is somehow non-inferential or something. Um and this, you know, as you this, the role of this directness seems to be the same as that of the clearness and distinctness, you know, that Descartes' ideas had had for him. Um, and of course, famously, you know, he argued that you know what guaranteed the truth of the clear and distinct ideas was, you know, through a very, through various arguments, basically came down to God guaranteed them. Um, uh, what is it about directness that gets you um, that sort of guarantee of truth, of, of knowledge? Yeah, so this is a really big, really important question. So backing up a step, there's two tasks in epistemology. There's what I call meta-epistemology, and then there's claims one makes about what one does, in fact, know. Meta-epistemology is the story you tell about what knowledge is. And if you think there's a distinction between foundational knowledge and inferential knowledge, you've got to, you've got to say what foundational knowledge is. So, so my view is that one has foundational knowledge that P, when one's directly acquainted with the fact that P, the thought that P, and the correspondence. I don't need God, I don't need anybody else to give me assurance of P when I'm in these states of acquaintance. I argue at least that everything I could possibly want by way of philosophical assurance is, is present and I'm directly aware of the truth maker, the truth bearer, and the truth making relationship. Descartes famously got himself in all sorts of trouble, it seems to me, by doing what I think you're right. Sometimes he seems to 
try to do, give an argument, liability of clarity, and say you can secure the premises in a non-circular way for such an argument. I'm not sure. He, uh, I'm not sure that he ever really wanted to identify an eye being clear and this an idea is being clear and distinct with it being a kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Uh, I think he didn't tell you how it was that he knows that he's thinking something. You know, when he establishes his existence, he says, well, I try to doubt my existence, but every time I try to doubt my existence, um, now this is me doing what philosophers always do to historical figures. They try to co-opt them. They try to view them as as, uh, essentially having the same view we have, but we we think we're doing them a favor. I mean, I think Descartes would resist even the ability of the question. If you said, how do you know you're trying to doubt right now? How do you know you're in that mental state of even considering the question of whether or not you exist? So I think Descartes has no answer other than it's obvious. I'm, I'm thinking about the matter. I mean, I know that. Well, let's uh, let me let me bring this back to the knowledge argument itself. Um, I mean, there's another there's a number of issues here about your take on the you know, what empirical data, what neuroscience and the other sciences can tell us about dualism. And I I do want to get to that. But um, let's just sort of following the train of thought that you pursue in the book. um, uh, uh, Approximately chapter four, chapter five, you you kind of return to the knowledge argument directly um, and you address... uh, some of the the arguments, some of the standard responses, you know, after establishing the sort of epistemological position that that you need, this non-inferential knowledge uh, position. Um, So I think the the question is, how does the, how does this very strongly epistemological approach to the knowledge argument um, sort of illuminate that debate. I mean, in in what in what sense does it you know sort of improve our understanding of of what's going on and what's important in in the debate? Um, so the claim is that one has knowledge by acquaintance with certain of our states. Um, we have knowledge by acquaintance with certain of our states. So let's suppose my I am in pain right now. Uh, I know by direct acquaintance that I'm in pain. Um, now, there are all kinds of different, so what, right? Um, I certainly don't know in that way that um, my brain is in a certain state, that neurons are firing, that clusters of neurons are firing. At least that's part of the argument. I don't know in that way uh, that that stuff happening. Still, couldn't I be uh, aware in some other way of that very uh, uh, pain property that I'm now directly aware of? Couldn't I know it, as Russell would say, by description? Couldn't even Mary uh, know by description what it was to look red, for example? I mean, Mary's examining in her black and white room what's going on in the brains of people. Uh, she can discover correlations between 
uh, people saying, oh, that looks red, and stuff happening in the brain, uh, she could even form the definite description, right? The property or the state people are in uh, when their brain is in a certain pattern, uh, when they say they're in pain and so on, when they're in front of tomatoes. You see tomatoes don't look red to her in the black and white environment, um, but she can, from her black and white experience, imagine that there's a way of looking that tomatoes have. And she can certainly think of the property and know the property in that way. But what is she, what doesn't she know? She doesn't know what the property is, and she doesn't know that the property is exemplified. Uh, when she does have experience for the first time of uh, something looking red, she makes a genuine discovery, mm-hmm. it seems to me. And the discovery is that I can't put it in any way that's interesting other than, hey, there's this property, which I didn't even know was included among all the properties that are exemplified. Mm-hmm. I knew that there was a property satisfying a certain description uh, that was exemplified, but I certainly know, didn't know that this is the property that was uh, uh, satisfying those descriptions. And that, I think, is the basis of the knowledge argument. That's, that's, I've got this direct awareness of a property of a sort that I never had before. Um, uh, can't I identify the property with the property I had only a description of? There's a sense in which you can, potentially, right? I'm, I'm not denying that Mary couldn't successfully form uh, the following identity claim. Mm-hmm. Um, looking red is the property exemplified by John when his brain is configured in a certain way and neurons are firing in a certain way. That's a true identity statement. Does it support physicalism? Um, well, with what are we identifying? That simple property. Is there another simple property with which we're identifying that property? The property of being in pain? You've been able to discover other properties. You've been able to think of other properties and use those other different properties to form an indirect thought of what it is to be in pain. But you haven't been able to uh, think directly of pain, nor have you been able to know directly what pain is. That's something that was missing from the totality of things you knew and the totality of things you were capable of thinking of directly. Mm. Well, let me let me just. Uh, I mean, it's it's. I mean, one of the f- famous responses to the knowledge argument you've you've just about articulated it yourself is is you're gaining a new mode of access. Um, you know that's sometimes put in different different forms, but um, that's the basic idea. Is you're gaining new mode of access to an old fact. Um, so there's nothing. There's no new property uh, unless you want to, you know, basically call any, you know, description of access a new property or something like that. Um, but there's there's in some sense, you know, there's 
what uh, was all re- what was there, what she knew about under some other description from some other mode of access, and now she gains a new way of accessing it. And you know, how do you how do you determine whether that response is just simply not adequate? It's not so much that it's not adequate. It seems to me it, it leaves out the nature of the uh, discovery. It's let me try a couple of very simple-minded analogies first, and you tell me what you think. Uh, um, I'm all excited because I finally uh, cracked the case. I finally discovered who Jack the Ripper was. Been investigating it for, for decades and decades and decades, and uh, I don't know. We found some blood samples and did some DNA testing, and it turns out it is that person in the royal family. Some people thought. Mm-hmm. Might have been uh, the Ripper. Um, and now imagine the following sort of conversation somebody had. Oh, you know, you didn't really uh, discover who Jack the Ripper was. We knew who Jack the Ripper was all along. I murdered all those people. Uh, you know, what are you all excited about? You know, oh, you maybe discovered a new way of accessing. Jack the Ripper. I mean, maybe we didn't know before we could, we could read about him in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew who Jack the Ripper was. He was just the guy, whoever he was, who killed all those people. There's something almost comical about that response, though, at least to me. Uh, there's a sense in which you did know who Jack the Ripper was. All that means is you had an identifying description. Uh, what you didn't know is, assuming you're giving some sort of Russellian account of the definite description, you had no idea who took the value of the variable in the description. When you discover that, you've made a really important discovery. I, I might know, you might constantly, I hear you constantly telling about your, me about your crazy Aunt Lucy who <laughs> has a favorite color and she, she, uh, buys everything the same color, her car is that color, her sweaters are that color, she's painted her driveway that color. Um, do I know what uh, color is your aunt's favorite? Here's a kind of comical answer. Yeah, it's the color she, she of her sweaters and her driveway and her car. I know what. Uh, I know it under that description, at least. But there's another sense another really clear and important sense in which I don't know what color it is so you tell me. Maybe it's purple. Maybe it's mauve. Maybe it's taupe, right? But I don't know what color it is until I know what takes the value of the variable in the definite description. The thing, whatever it is, the color whatever it is that my aunt likes more than any other color and that she she uh, uh, uses as a criterion to decide what clothes to buy and so on, right? So I, the Mary argument is not that Mary has no way of denoting um, the property of looking red. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't know what she's denoting. She doesn't know what takes the value of the variable when you cash out the definite description uh, as the complicated claim about there being one thing which thing has certain properties. She knows properties of the property. That's what she knows. Mm -hmm. Because she's able to know and think of 
properties of the property. She can single out the property indirectly. And one of the things I really wanted to stress in this book is that there's two kinds of foundationalism. There's a foundationalism about knowledge, and that's what allows you to know paradigmatic mental properties in a way you can't know any other properties. And then there's a foundationalism of thought. We have to distinguish things you can think of directly and things you can think of only indirectly. Uh, some things you think of indirectly as just whatever it is that has certain properties. And you can think of anything indirectly in that way. You can think of properties indirectly as the bearer of certain metal properties. You can think of meta properties as the bearer of still higher level properties. You can think of people as whoever it is that has certain properties. You can think of anything, facts, events, if there are any. You think of anything indirectly. But you can only think of things indirectly because you can think of other things directly. You can only pick out something as the bearer of certain properties if you can pick out those properties. Now, those properties you might be picking out indirectly, too, as the bearer of still other properties. But on pain of a vicious regress, there better be something you can think of uh, without having to think of something else. My view is that it's mental properties that are at least included among the properties you can think of directly. I actually don't think any physical properties are properties you can think of directly. So if anything, part of what I'm trying to convince people of, I know it's not exactly going to be an easy road. I'm trying to convince people that physicalists have everything exactly backwards. The, the world that we understand, the world that we know directly, just is the world of the mental. Everything else is actually material. Everything else you understand only in terms of uh, thoughts you have about the mental. Everything else you understand and are able to think of only indirectly. So the kind of dualism I'm defending, the kind of dualism um, I'm urging other people to accept one that, in effect, reverses completely the uh, way in which the physicalist thinks about the problematic nature of uh, uh, mental reality. So I think a lot of physicalists really think of the mental as the potentially spooky stuff, stuff that you don't understand very well, the stuff that it would be really helpful to reduce to this much less problematic uh, physical stuff, mm -hmm. physical properties that science studies. As a, as a radical and very traditional foundationalist, I think that's completely wrong. I think the world we know best and the world we can think about directly is the world of subjective appearance. Uh, the physical world, my view is, we know only indirectly, and importantly, we can think about only indirectly. We think of physical objects in terms of the causal role they play in affecting us with subjective experiences. That's our only access uh, in knowledge, and it's our only access in thought, I think, to the nature of physical objects. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of radical skepticism uh, about the intrinsic properties 
exemplified by physical objects, assuming that physical objects exist. Again, my view is that we know them, we think about them only in terms of the role they play in affecting us with subjective experience. If, if anything like that view is right, it's the mental that is, um, it, it's the mental that we understand and know the best. It's the rest that's problematic. We should be trying as hard as we can to reduce as much of what we know and think about to the mental, not the other way around. Well, one of, I mean, there's a couple of issues here with, you know, the role of science, you know, um, but you, you're emphasizing, you know, the mental as what's known best. But of course, you know, empirical science also shows that our, you know, what seems like direct, clear, you know, knowledge of what's going on in our own minds is in fact uh, very fallible in a lot of different ways. Um, and so that's, you know, if you, if you think that what is best known to us is what we can have access to through introspection, um, and apparently um, introspection is extremely fallible in terms of um, its deliverances, um, then it's it it seems like we're kind of uh lost in space uh where we don't have the sort of knowledge that we think we have intuitively um but at the same time science uh on your view is is even less well known and so it seems like uh either we just don't know anything not even our minds um or we just have to kind of tack back and forth to try to um, to try to get a better picture both of the external world and the internal world. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that I'll, let me try to say. First of all, once you're committed to the kind of foundationalism um, I believe is is plausible, it's not. There's no tacking back and forth. It's not as if, okay, I'm going to start with how things appear to me today, but then I'm going to turn to science and forget about how things look and start there and, and, and uh, maybe I can make some discovery about appearances that way. There is no escaping, if you like, the sort of radical egocentric perspective. Uh, for me to discover what scientists are even saying, I'm going to have to rely still on appearances. There's no, there's no escaping the way things look, the way things sound, the way things appear more generally. There's no escaping that on my view as the starting point. If a scientist says, I don't want to start there, I want to start with uh, uh, some instrument readings, my response is, I don't care where you want to start, you've got no alternative. You've got to start in trying to get at your instruments with how they look to you, what the readings appear to be. There's no, there's no peeking behind <laughs> how things look to see how they are so you don't have to go through that first step. I mean, that's... So there's the disanalogy. You said that, but 
don't we know by now that introspection is highly fallible? Uh, I've already said that that just because something is a property of uh, a mental state doesn't follow that we've got foundational knowledge um, that that property is exemplified. There's the, there's the old problem of the speckled hand. I think uh, most of your listeners would be familiar with it probably, but you've got this experience as of, let's say, a 48 speckled hand. It looks 48 speckledly, as some people would awkwardly put it. Uh, but all, all but a few idiot savants couldn't discover by concentrating hard on the character of their experience that it had that detailed structure, that it had that complicated property. So haven't we just found out without any even fancy scientific experiments that um, introspection isn't the be-all and the end-all when it comes to discovering the character of experience, the certain features of experience that, that we, we can't know non-inferentially even when it's in a current state and we're in that state. That's all right, it seems to me. The exact explanation you give of why you lack knowledge in that state, that's a more complicated issue, but that you do lack knowledge, it seems to me, is, is just a datum. On the other hand, that's not a reason for distrusting introspection in general. I mean, there are any number of explanations of why you don't know how many speckles are in that visual field. Maybe you're not directly acquainted with that property. Maybe you're not capable of forming an occurrence thought, and maybe you're not acquainted with correspondence between the thought and the fact. Uh, that doesn't alter the fact that when I'm in severe pain, it seems to me I know uh, directly and with the best sort of justification imaginable that I'm in severe pain. I mean, years and years ago, uh, David Armstrong tried to convince us in a short paper that that's, even that's not true. Uh, if, if we had a, an established enough neuroscience and they work hard on discovering correlations, uh, I go visit such a scientist with my brain all hooked up to um, thermal imaging equipment. Uh, the scenario is one in which the, the scientist assures me that no matter how much I think it hurts, I'm actually not in pain. I mean, we've got this theory. The, the, we, we don't have the, the proper part of the brain lighting up. You just can't be in pain. You know, I've never been moved by that thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Never at all. I think to me, as I'm sitting there in agonizing pain, I would appropriately respond to the neuroscientist, get yourself a different neuroscientific theory. <laughs> obviously wrong. I mean, I don't care. Maybe check your equipment. Do something. But I'm in pain. I know I'm in pain. I know that better than I know anything. Um, is it true of every feature of every mental state that I know it in that way? Absolutely not. But it's true of some features of some mental states that I know them in that way. And unless it's possible to know some features of some mental states in that way, I do think you can't know anything at all to any extent whatsoever. But then I'm a foundationalist. Uh, and part of this project, I mean, it was good, I think, that I waited a long time to write this book because while I always 
sort of knew this. It really brought home to me how uh, interrelated a host of really hard philosophical issues are, how difficult it is to think about problems in one area of philosophy without thinking about a host of other problems that arise in other areas of philosophy. And, uh, and so, for example, everything I just said presupposes that a coherence theory of justification is incorrect. I've spent a lot of uh, time right. a lot of different places arguing against the coherence theory of justification. And with it, a coherence theory of knowledge, I claim that they're literally not coherent. Uh, either that or they're wildly implausible. Um, and, and that's that's the sense in which I, I am very frank to admit that unless you're accepting a version of foundationalism, everything I said for the past five minutes mm-hmm. didn't seem to you but persuasive. On the other hand, I'm perfectly prepared to give you what I take to be decisive arguments against coherence. There is justification. Right. Uh, decisive arguments against uh, externalist accounts of knowledge and justification. Uh, you know, when I talk about decisive arguments, we're talking philosophy, so we don't mean by decisive arguments that succeed in convincing the entire profession. Uh, first, I try to convince myself. <laughs> then I try to convince the select few and hope that the word spreads. Well, what a, we're uh, we're running out of out of time, um, but I did want to let me let me just ask uh, a final question, which actually picks up on what you were just uh, what you were just saying. Um, you know, granted that you know your defense, you know, all of the questions, all of the objections one can raise, and the way the debate goes back and forth, you know, ultimately brings in all these other you know, foundational issues um, about epistemology and and metaphysics and mind and so forth. Um, So, you know, given, you know, your, you know, very obvious recognition of those facts, how, how persuasive do you think this argument is for, for property dualism? Um, uh, You know, most of the people, as, as you acknowledge, most, most philosophers today, you know, are, are not foundationalists. Um, uh, they don't, you know, hold a sort of direct acquaintance theory, which, you know, doesn't mean that it can't be defended, and you do. Um, but, you know, the, the majority don't, you know, are not in that camp. Um, and so in a sense, um, uh, is your, you know, I, I take it, given that you know you're you're in a minority position, I assume that you're goal in the book is is not so much to persuade other philosophers of your position on dualism um, so what is what would be the overall message yeah so let me say, again let me say just a couple of things it's, it's um, I suppose I'm never completely comfortable with um, admitting that my goal is not to persuade people of the views I argue for. Uh, it, it, it's a goal, but it's it's uh, a goal that I realize is I'm unlikely to achieve. I'm, I'm a, mm. It's philosophy. I, I don't, how many times have you actually heard two philosophers with radically different views 
debates and have one of them end the debate by saying, I guess you're right. I'm <laughs> It Never. just doesn't happen, so I don't enter. I don't enter uh, philosophical debates of any sort with the expectation that at the end of the debate, the party with whom I was arguing will have become completely convinced of my view. So, so there's that. Uh, every position that's really interesting in philosophy, it seems to me, is a minority position. Mm-hmm. One of the things we struggle with. It's why I think philosophers have become so fascinated by uh, the epistemological implications of disagreement. There's all sorts of cases in which, you know, banal cases in which we take the fact that somebody disagrees with us to be um, uh, a potentially strong defeater for whatever justification we might otherwise have had. When I add up the check to take the familiar example and get a certain uh, total and you do the same thing and get a different total I just knew whatever justification I initially had for thinking the total was such and such to have been uh, severely weakened but really smart philosophers disagree with each other about all these issues and then the question arises well then why aren't we all defeated I mean once you know that the smart person holds the view different from yours doesn't that defeat the justification you have for believing what you believe? And of course, we don't think that. I mean, I think I'm still justified in believing what I assert, and you think you're justified in believing what you assert, and we just doggedly pursue the task of trying to convince each other of our respective position. Having said all that, I, I did try to... Uh, emphasize in the introduction that there's another thing that, that I think is really important to do in philosophy, and that's uh, find the forks in the road, let's put it that way. Mm. Uh, recognize at what, what points on, uh, say, an issue concerning representation, it makes a difference if you go down this road or this road. At what point when it comes to foundations of knowledge, it makes a difference whether you go down uh, this road or that road. Uh, and I think with respect to the issues and philosophy of mind, the roads are really, really complicated roads. There are far- forks all over the place. And uh, trying to uh, see what the conceptual connections are between the different views one might hold the way those decisions can force you into one position as opposed to another, I think that's a fascinating philosophical um, uh, conclusion as well. That's a fascinating philosophical discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the same thing as convincing people to take the force you want them to take. That's, right. a, that's a different matter. And I haven't given up on that. I've just been realistic. I've mm-hmm. I, I, uh, been doing philosophy for a very long time. I haven't convinced all that many people to accept uh, some of my most uh, treasured views. Um, well, what's, so what is, uh, what's your next, uh, next project? Are you um, working on another book in this area or moving to something different? You know, it's probably going to be something really different. Um, again, I, all my life I've had really broad interests in philosophy. I probably 
best known for what I've done in epistemology, but I've also done a lot of work in ethics, uh, philosophy of mind, more general metaphysics. I've done some work in philosophy of law. I'm getting more interested in political philosophy. Um, I might write a book uh, relatively soon trying to defend a version of libertarianism, but from a... Uh, from a consequentialist perspective, not a rights-based perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something I've, uh, it would be really, really different for me, but something I'm kind of looking forward to exploring. Great. Uh, well, I think we are out of time, but um, I want to thank you for a, a very, very interesting uh, conversation about a lot of aspects, although not all the aspects of, of the book. Uh, there were there were things that I wanted to just touch on, but uh, we unfortunately did not get the chance. But that's just an opportunity for people to actually uh, read through it themselves. Yeah, we can use this this part of it as a trailer for the entire yeah. book. I want to thank you though for the terrific questions. They really were good questions, and it gave me a chance at least to uh, uh, give people a feel for some of the uh, issues I tackle in the book. Great. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to the to the next book. Uh, thank you, Carrie. Okay. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Richard Fummerton, F. Wendell Miller, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. We've been talking about his new book, Knowledge, Thought, and the Case for Dualism, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.